the viciousness of our politics is because people aren't optimistic about the direction of the country. Let policymakers and let elected officials be pressured by their own publics for things that are good for the country. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Fernando Cilia, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Julianne and Fabiana Corsi. This Friday will mark President Joe Biden's 100th day as the 46th President of the United States. This means 100 days of Biden foreign policy. What has he done thus far? Has he kept his campaign promises? What are some areas his administration could improve on? And is there a semblance of a Biden foreign policy doctrine? To answer these questions and more, we're joined by Dr. Corey Shaki. Corey Shaki is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Before joining AEI, Dr. Shaki was the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She has had a distinguished career in government, working at the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Dr. Shaki, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. So almost 100 days have passed since President Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. I think that's coming up on the 30th. Um, this means that there have been almost uh, 100 days of Biden foreign policy. So to start us off, how would you characterize these first 100 days in the broadest terms? I'd characterize them as a welcome relief from the melodrama and uh, uncertainty of the Trump administration and a reassertion of boring competence in American foreign policy that I think is a relief to allies as well as to national security professionals. So I want us to delve a little bit further into that comparison between the Trump administration's foreign policy and the foreign policy of President Biden. So, you know, first of all, in what ways and areas have we seen continuity across the administrations? Sure. I think there has been continuity in trade policy, namely the Biden administration has continued uh, the tariffs that the Trump administration put on not just on adversaries like China, but they've even kept tariffs in place on some of America's friends and allies. A second area of continuity is the desire to leave Afghanistan. Both the Trump administration and the Biden administration are ready to write off the future of Afghanistan. Uh, And I think increasingly Iraq and Syria as well. So a a general um, retrenchment ethos, but specific in those three locations. I also think there is continuity of a sort of America first economic policy. Uh, The Biden administration is better mannered in how they talk about it, but um, I haven't seen a willingness to compromise on American priorities, even when they are important economically to allies. And I'm thinking in particular of the Keystone Pipeline, 
which Canada wasn't consulted on the Biden administration's uh, refusal to move forward with, and the stridency of both Trump and Biden opposition to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, despite its being 95% complete and um, and uh, important to Germany economically. Uh, where else have I seen continuity? I think those are the big ones. Um, uh, but I think there are really important areas of difference. Uh, the affinity for working with allies and international institutions that we see in the Biden administration is a stark contrast to the Trump administration's belief that allies were either free riders or a source of danger to the United States rather than the traditional American and also conservative American view that America's allies are our greatest advantage in managing international problems. A huge sea change in attitudes about uh, our nearest neighbors, Canada and Mexico, which I think is going to cause the Biden administration some difficulty in dealing with uh, immigration and border control issues, but is nonetheless welcome. Uh, large sea change in uh, specifically in appreciation for the difficult position Japan is in with a rising China and the danger of North Korea's nuclear program. You saw that uh, Japanese foreign minister, excuse me, Japanese prime minister Suga was at the White House uh, just last week and taking a common position with the U.S. Uh, where else do I see discontinuities? Uh, ah, the centrality of democracy and human rights. I'm a little bit worried for the Biden administration on this one because I think they are talking a more robust game on human rights than their policies actually have a risk tolerance for advancing. And one of the things I noticed about, in particular, Russian foreign policy in the last decade or so is a thirst to expose the gap between what we're saying and what we're actually willing to do in Syria and Ukraine and other places. Um, but it's nonetheless a welcome reassertion of a values-based foreign policy. So you pointed out a tension between Biden and perhaps his allies in Congress or Biden and an increasingly polarized Republican side of Congress as well. I just wanted to note, you know, the future of Afghanistan and some of these other continuities that you pointed out. How is Congress responding to these continuities? And can we expect a little bit of cooperation on the basis that the administrations are continuing some of these old threads? That's a really interesting question, Fabiana. And I think the honest answer is it's too soon to tell. Um, it looks to me like President Biden's strategy is to ignore the views of elected Republican officials and argue that his policies are broadly appealing to Republican voters, even if not appealing to Republican members of Congress. Um, he seems to be betting a fair amount on, on Republican voters uh, 
leading rather than following Republican elite opinion. And it's an interesting experiment. It's probably, uh, it's a brave experiment because if it fails, you will infuriate elected Republican officials and you may infuriate them even if it succeeds. But I think the willingness of Republicans in Congress to have uh, prevented, to have broken the rules uh, most most noticeably in the refusal to give a hearing to Supreme Court Justice nominee Merrick Garland has uh, really poisoned the well for gestures of cooperation. And so I think that's going to be a lagging indicator of policy agreement, not a leading indicator of policy agreement. But the other thing I'd say, um, Fabiana, is that uh, during the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress did not just call out their opposition to his withdrawal from Afghanistan, withdrawal from Syria, desire to uh, really squeeze allies on the funding of stationing of U.S. forces and the threat to withdraw U.S. troops from Europe, uh, Republicans in Congress did join with their Democratic counterparts, not only to object to that, but to legislate and prevent uh, many of those things occurring by denying the funding for the execution of the policy. So I don't think uh, cooperation on foreign and defense policy is nearly as complicated a, a navigation for bipartisanship as domestic policy. Dr. Shaki, in during the 2020 campaign, President Biden campaigned on several promises with regards to foreign policy. What we would like to do now is compare how his rhetoric on the campaign trail has translated into actual policy now that he and the Democratic Power, Democratic Party, excuse me, are in power. Mm-hmm. So first, he often spoke about standing up for human rights and democratic values throughout the world during the campaign. These past hundred days have been full of challenges with this regard, especially given how the coup in Myanmar, the genocide in Xinjiang, and responding to Saudi Arabia's past behavior. Mm-hmm. So how has President Biden approached these challenges and others alike as well? It looks to me like the Biden administration is hoping that using America's voice and some marginal sanctions uh, will be adequate to the task. So on Saudi Arabia, for example, they released the intelligence estimate blaming, connecting Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to the Khashoggi brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but they didn't take action against the Saudi government. Or it doesn't look like we'll refuse to sell arms to the Saudi government. So they're trying to hit a delicate balance, and my guess is it will be inadequate to the task. If not, uh, so Dr. Shaki, what could the Biden administration be doing more to make sure that the promise that they made during the campaign trail is fulfilled, you know, protecting uh, human rights and democratic values around the world? So there's no actual substitute for solidarity and, and matching your rhetoric to your actions. So we should all be standing in solidarity with Australia 
and buying the products that China is refusing admission to its markets because of Australia calling for investigation into the origin of the COVID virus and canceling a Belt and Road project that the state of Victoria had entered into a contract with uh, Chinese companies for. We should all be uh, bearing witness at the trials of the Canadian hostages that the Chinese have taken. Uh, We should all be acting together to expel diplomats when Russia Uh, when Russia does damage to the people and the government of the Czech Republic. Uh, So I think they need to take more action in alignment. The only actions they have taken so far are releasing intelligence assessments and imposing sanctions. And we overuse sanctions. There are a lot of other ways that free societies can band together Um, and stand shoulder to shoulder in the face of aggression and in the face of human rights violations. Um, And so they should put more creativity on the docket on that one. All right. And President Biden also promised on the campaign trail that rebuilding America's network of alliances would be one of his main priorities. And you've already mentioned a little bit uh, that this was one of the key differences between the Biden and the Trump administrations. So... What is your analysis of the Biden administration's approach to rebuilding our alliance network? What has he done differently from the Trump administration? And how do you imagine that our relationships with with our allies are going to improve or maybe stay the same? I do think relations with allies are going to improve because good manners actually matter. Um, You know, uh, not saying nasty things about heads of state of allied countries is a huge improvement over what President Trump um, thought was appropriate behavior. What I haven't seen enough of from the Biden administration yet is a willingness to compromise on U.S. preferences and priorities in order to support an ally. So, you know, backing off on Nord Stream 2 and instead of saying, don't do this, Uh, coming up with creative ways to make Eastern European and Baltic countries less fearful, talking up the changes the European Union has made in its energy sector to reduce the potential for Russia to use energy as a weapon against the EU and beyond. Um, I would uh, love to see them... um, contribute to the Indian and Japanese investment fund uh, to to support infrastructure projects that are not Belt and Road Initiative projects, instead of needing to start a new one that we're at the head of. The best way for the United States to support its allies is to encourage them to take initiative and to quietly underwrite their success. My favorite example of it, France, is um, during the East Timor independence movement uh, during the Clinton administration. It happened right after the American debacle in Somalia, at, after which President Clinton blamed U.S. mistakes on the U.N., 
creating a deep public uh, resentment. So there was no way the United States could lead a UN effort in East Timor to try and help make the transition peaceful. Australia actually stepped forward and was willing to under John Howard's government. And the United States quietly promised any military assistance the Australian force needed, uh, provided all sorts of unacknowledged support so that Australia justifiably looked heroic for what they were doing. And I contrast that with the way the Obama administration, for example, during the NATO intervention in Libya, loudly took credit for all the things we said no other ally could do. And that disincentivizes allies stepping forward and taking responsibility, which is actually what our policy is designed to produce. Um, So I would like to see a lot more of that out of the Biden administration. I should say, I, I think they're plenty capable of it. They just haven't done it yet. And another key promise that candidate Biden made was to align our foreign policy goals more with our domestic goals in order to make foreign policy work a bit better for Americans. And so we would presumably think that this would include everything from our economic relationship with China to climate change. So how is President Biden doing when it comes to this? And have we seen, like, is this enough so far? So the first thing I would say is that it is fundamentally untrue that American foreign policy before Joe Biden was president did not benefit Americans. So I object to Biden's framing of the issue. Um, It's a cheap ploy for making domestic policies a priority. And, uh, but that said, Julia, I think, um, explaining more to Americans why we are doing what we are doing in the world. I think it's striking that none of the last three American presidents were willing to expend any political capital to justify why we were still in Afghanistan and what we were actually doing there. And one of the things I know as an expert in civil military relations is that the American public is enormously pliable and willing to support uh, American government efforts abroad of all kinds, provided two things. First, that the president's willing to explain to them what we're doing and why we're doing it. And second, that the resources appear to match the importance of the undertaking. And, And Obama... Trump and Biden have all been unwilling to do that on Afghanistan. And I suspect we will regret that uh, two to five years from now. What he is focusing on, on American foreign and domestic policy interlinking, is that it's it's a ploy for support of uh, mercantilist policies that say, Everything that the United States government supports has to be built in the United States, which is both bad economic policy and also violates a whole bunch of trade agreements we're party to. So straightening that out, I think, is going to be problematic for the administration. One huge opportunity 
that they have and that I expect they will positively capitalize on is using vaccine policy as both domestic and foreign policy. That is uh, supporting the American companies that have produced these amazing vaccines and making them widely available elsewhere. You know, I have a good friend who grew up in Haiti and listening to him talk about how scary the COVID pandemic is for a country like Haiti that doesn't imagine itself capable of producing vaccines um, is really heartrending. And the United States has traditionally played an enormously important role. Think of President Bush's PEPFAR program to help alleviate the burden of AIDS on the continent of Africa. We, that is outstanding American foreign policy. It's not expensive. It's not uh, American soldiers forcing change. It's helping people solve urgent problems. And if American companies can be a part of that, as they traditionally have been, all the better. And kind of turning our attention to, although the related topic of the rise in great power competition across the world, especially during the last few years, I think it is important now to discuss President Biden's actions towards China and Russia. And so my question for you is, how has the administration handled the relationship with America's two biggest adversaries? Are there clear strategies and how do these strategies differ or remain the same as previous administrations? It's a great question, Julia. I think um, one really important difference is President Trump's weird, creepy affinity for dictators uh, made for uh, discontinuity, internal contradiction in his policies. He would fawn over Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and then his administration would try and advance policies that were punitive towards those two countries. And in international relations, confusion is rarely advantageous, especially for the country that is the real giver and enforcer of the international order as the United States is. So simple clarity of message is much better already in the Biden administration than it was in the Trump administration, right? Uh, that there's no contradiction between what the president of the United States is saying and what his administration is doing. And that is already a big improvement. Another big improvement is coordinating America's actions with America's allies. So coordinating Taiwan policy with the prime minister of Japan, coordinating Ukraine policy with the, our allies in NATO and our friends in the European Union, those are all hugely important force multipliers for the United States. Um, and it's great to see the Biden administration once again using that advantage adroitly. Um, a continuity in both China and Russia policies by the United States is the overuse of economic sanctions, uh, which 
You know, it's come to be the foreign policy tool of choice in a way that creates systemic incentives for countries to develop ways to avoid having to be using dollars as the holding currency. And when that exorbitant privilege evaporates for the United States, we're going to wish we were more creative and used other tools of foreign policy a lot more uh, efficaciously. So notably, despite stating otherwise on the campaign trail, Biden all but confirmed that he would remain open to making a 2024 run, kind of shaking up the ground there. Does this change the calculus of other global leaders, particularly Russia and China, as they approach the Biden administration? Oh, it's a great question, Fabiana. No, I don't think it does. Uh, you know, Biden was smart to, to not immediately declare himself a lame duck, but it would be crazy of him to try and run for a second term. What he could best do to advance his agenda would be to showcase and give his imprimata to one or two or at most three potential successors who could compete for the Democratic nomination in 2024. Joe Biden's a really old man now. And there was opposition to his candidacy because of his age. Um, you know, getting somebody young enough to have two terms in office and advance his agenda would be a much smarter political strategy and would, in fact, make foreign leaders much more much more uh, strongly believe that his agenda is going to continue than would a Biden's run for a second term. So passing it on to the next generation, which is something we heard so much about uh, from Biden during the campaign, and actually with which a lot of his appointments beautifully back up, both in their diversity and in their... Uh, actuarial youth. So given that, in your expert opinion, what are three recommendations that you might give the Biden administration moving forward in their foreign policy on days, you know, 101 to 200? Well, the first is that they are right that American foreign policy has become over-militarized. And uh, they are moving fast to draw down the military pieces of it, but they are not moving nearly fast enough to amp up the diplomatic, the intelligence, the economic, uh, the technological uh, replacements for military force. And that's going to take an awful lot of effort to be able to create the capacity of the American government to use more diverse tools. They're underinvesting in that and they shouldn't be, is my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice uh, is to uh, be do less grandstanding about human rights and a lot more nuts and bolts assistance to forces for uh, the protection of human rights 
and the advancement of democracy, right? Support the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, civil society groups, including religious organizations that have enormous uh, amount of impact in the world. Uh, so get busy helping actual organizations that do this. Don't just make statements because the government um, is leaning way out in front of its skis on uh, human rights and democracy promotion. Uh, in a way, its policies are going to be problematic for, as the Saudi Arabia example from earlier. And the third thing I would advise them is that they are right that there's an enormous amount of Republican support for things like pandemic, um, uh, economic recovery, for infrastructure programs, for building back better, because a lot of the viciousness of our politics is because people aren't optimistic about the direction of the country. So keep, keep choosing to try and do big things that can unite the public uh, and let policymakers and let elected officials uh, be pressured by their own publics for things that are good for the country. Dr. Shaki, we often like to end our podcast by looking towards the future. So with that being said, do you see a clear Biden doctrine at the moment? If so, what does this doctrine starting to look like? And what could it mean for the long-term future of U.S. foreign policy? I think the Biden doctrine is a return to pre-1990 American foreign policy that, uh, that lives our values and tries to promote our values, but doesn't overcommit to trying to create change elsewhere. Uh, and much more, uh, actually it's a policy that would be recognizable to the Eisenhower administration that believed that all military force should do in great power competition is freeze the status quo uh, while the advantages of free societies the prosperity, the human dignity, the creativity of free societies actually drew others towards our way of life and towards our belief of what the international order should be. And that'll be a good thing for the United States. And it'll be a good thing for the international order. Well, Dr. Shaki, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. We really enjoyed having you. It was a great pleasure, Franz, Fabiana, and Julia. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.